Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's bring in Eric Friedman, U.S. Bank Asset Management Chief Investment Officer. Eric, let's start right here and not with Ted Lasso. I'll save you, don't worry. You've asked the important question. Is this just a little correction or is this a transition into something bigger? Which one is it? Jonathan, we think it is a, a just a pause as opposed to a phase transition. Really two reasons behind that. Number one is we think there's this push-pull between what we're calling Horizon 1 and Horizon 2. Horizon 1 is the reopening investment horizon. The gradual mobility increases, more flights and, and, and more mobility across cities. Horizon 2 is what happens once we're already there, once that reopening occurred. And so we do think that the fits and starts that we're seeing in Horizon 1 will, will have corrections like this. And we also think that probably a little nuance here is the bond market is likely already pricing in Horizon 2. The terminal value of Fed funds likely lower as well as general productivity and demographics weaker. So we think this this push-pull will continue, yeah. but we're still bullish. We're still sticking with that, that, that growth mentality. Eric, you write an extremely sober adult note. We don't see enough of those. It's from a button-down banker with belt and suspenders. I get it. When there's a phase transition, how do you know when to make that transition to a different portfolio allocation? Tom, the biggest thing that we're focused on are really three variables. Number one is the dollar. And what we're looking at the dollar is a is a rise above 94, 94 and a half the DXY wow. or 112 in the trade weighted dollar index. Number two would be the tenure. We think a test of let's call it 110 down to 1%. That would signify that the bond market is, is pricing a really worse horizon two by our parlance. And I think the final is going to be our viewpoint on earnings. As mentioned earlier, and, and Taylor does a great job of this. Talking about rate of change, we are in a, a very delicate position right now within terms of both revenue forecasts as well as earnings forecasts. If we see some deterioration there as we get deeper into this reporting season, that would signify to us that we need to come off that growth mindset, that, that pro-risk mindset into more of a, of a neutral positioning. That's where our, our bias is right now. Eric, you have bond guys like Jeff Gunlock of Double Line saying that stocks are attractive on a relative basis because a 125 on the 10-year doesn't make sense. How are you thinking about relative value? Yeah, it's a great question, Taylor. Basically, two things we're looking at. Number one is if you look at the risk premium, which is a wonkish term, it basically shows the difference between you know the, the dividend yield of, of global equities versus 10-year uh, or even global uh, global rates. It's really attractive. Stocks look very attractive versus fixed income versus their own history. Stocks are certainly in the top quartile of expensive. So we think fair value for the 10-year. Taylor is likely around 160, 161. Doesn't mean we have to get there immediately, but our viewpoint is a gradual re retracing, if you will, upward in, in bond yields suggests that, that stocks probably have a little more value here, but you have to look at them on both an absolute basis uh, from a relative uh, value standpoint on a risk premium basis as well as versus their own history. So relative value certainly favors equities over fixed income here. Eric, what on earth is fair value in a bond market with a huge monster-sized insensitive buyer, price insensitive buyer? What's fair value in the Treasury market these days? How do we even come up with that? There are almost three waves of buyers, Jonathan. You have you have general speculations of people making making bets on where 10 years go. You have hedgers in terms of mortgage 
as well as as uh, pension pension buyers, and you have, I'd say, just a steady drumbeat of, of Fed participation. So tough to have an edge on uh, on speculators, but if you look at what's happening in the mortgage market, if you look at what's happening with uh, with respect to pension funds, those liabilities are getting more expensive. So that's almost like that that short gamma position continues to grow. That means people are stepping back into the bond market. So again, we think that position gets cleaned up and a gradual retracement up to that 160 level is more likely. But again, it will happen on a, on a very phased, very gradual basis. Eric, we've got to leave it there. It's good to catch up, sir. Right now in the pandemic, it has been a joy to speak to Bhakti Ansadi with Johns Hopkins, her expertise in emergency medicine. I want to go there today, Bhakti, instead of the geography that you are expert at. In emergency rooms at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, there's got to be a certain percentage of people working there who are unvaccinated. There's got to be a certain percentage of people coming into the emergency room unvaccinated. What do you do? So regarding employees of Johns Hopkins Hospital, we are vaccinated. We all do show our vaccine status um, that is now documented and recorded. Regarding unvaccinated patients, we have that knowledge on who's vaccinated and who's not. My practice is to gown up and be ready um, if I'm unsure of their vaccine status or their COVID status. Doctor, I was very surprised to read the following stat in the New York Times that around 60% of workers in the city's public hospital system are vaccinated. Given what's happened in the last year, I would have expected that number to be far, far higher. Where is that resistance coming from, Doctor? So we feel like a lot of that resistance is coming from our ancillary services. Um, there are still individuals who, despite working in public health hospitals, um, have uh, misconceptions or concerns around the medical systems, um, have vaccine hesitancy, have uh, you know vic- victims of misinformation. And so it is really difficult to prove a counterfactual, and that is something we're still struggling with um, in all sectors of society, not just public health hospitals. Doctor, many people are characterizing this as a political party issue. Do you think that's helpful? It is not. This is not a political party issue. This is not a national issue. This is a global issue that affects every single one of us. Until we reduce the amount of circulating virus and we get vaccinated, we don't get to return back to normal. And it's as simple as that. Doctor, are the vaccines effective against Delta? Vaccines are effective against Delta. It is very common to see individuals who still get sick despite having vaccines. We see this every year with the flu. Mm. Um, The Pfizer vaccine studies show 88% effectiveness two weeks after getting your second dose. But that does mean that 12 out of 100 people will potentially still get the illness. But we know that it's the disease-bearing vaccines. They're less likely to be severely ill, less likely to end up in the ICU, less likely to die. What do you think it's going to take to see if schools can 100% reopen or not in the fall? We were having a conversation here that the markets perhaps might actually believe that something is wrong if schools don't reopen, if that is the catalyst. What do you think it takes for us to get there? You know, I think we've learned a lot about how to reopen school safety. Um, In the spring of this year, my daughter's school opened. They used pods. They, um, you know, they created um, pods of play. Um, Classrooms didn't interact. There was temperature checks. Yes, you know, it's a bit strange taking your child and you go temperature check every morning. But I felt perfectly safe that my child was in school with the precautions that were put in place. 
Back to you, I want to talk to you about bacteriology and microbiology because I just don't buy this for a minute. We cured ourselves from the horrific child killer diphtheria. I was on the back end of polio. Taylor, I believe, or Anne-Marie uh, mentioned earlier, Senator McConnell's battle personally with polio. I, I don't buy it for a minute that we haven't done this before. From bacteria, we got vaccinated. From viruses, we got vaccinated. What's different this time? Um, there's nothing different. Vaccine innovations have been ahead of the curve. Um, luckily, we had the mRNA vaccine um, studies that were done for cancer drugs, which allowed us to find a suitable vector um, for the vaccine and implement it rapidly. Uh, we also do have viral vector vaccines as well, which are extremely innovative. Um, so nothing is different. We have actually used all of our lessons learned and applied them to the COVID-19 right. pandemic. The challenge is therapeutics. So with bacteria, we have antibiotics that affect the ability of the bacteria to reproduce and stop infection. Viruses have always been more trippy, tricky due to the way that they replicate. How do we incentivize these people? I mean, people are saying, give them money. Get, do this, do this, do this. How do we get this fixed at a Joe Biden speed? So there is two groups. There is the hardcore conspiracy theories, vaccine. Yeah, they're never going to be. Right? I get it. You cannot yeah. change, right? I, I got it. I got it. But the majority of the people are people that have, A, underestimated their vulnerability to getting sick. Second, overestimated the side effects of the vaccine. And because they're kind of just lost, they have chose to do nothing. Now, that is a group that we target. We need to promote positive messaging around the vaccine. We need to educate people with clear, concise facts about the true risks of vaccination and stop overinflating the few side effects that have been seen or the isolated cases in social media. Do you think full authorization would help push this issue forward and move away from just emergency youth authorization of these vaccines? And unfortunately, yes, right? So I think for the lay public, the difference between full authorization and emergency youth authorization is one of the big sticking points in their vaccine confidence. The truth of the matter is the way that these studies were conducted was rigorous, just as we would have conducted any other new drug intervention study. Um, due to like the national reporting software, the VARES software from CDC, we have national reporting on vaccine side effects, which is phenomenal. And the use case here is in the millions. And so I, I think like having that sticky label that says this is fully authorized, I think will improve people's confidence. Yeah. Although scientifically, it is unnecessary. Doctor, we appreciate your effort, that's for sure. Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Dr. Bhakti Hansati there. Johns Hopkins University Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine on some of the issues, Tom, and those issues are always far more complex than some people make yeah. them out to be. Right now, we go to your content, where content is king. Michael Nathanson with Craig Moffat at Moffat Nathanson has just been spectacular on all of this stuff that we watch at home, and is there really an opportunity to make money at it? Michael Nathanson, where's the profit? Megden Desai at LSE says it's all about profit. It's all about getting out there and making money. Is there an identifiable profit in the streaming business? At this point, there isn't. Um, the profit is, is going back to, to consumer. Given all the discounting that's being done, the consumer is grabbing the profit, and companies are subsidizing consumers' content habits at this point. 
Comcast was able to make that shift in cable TV to get to real profit, to real cash flow. Do you model an equivalency here to what Comcast did in cable TV, or is this time different? This time is different. Um, we, you know, Netflix is the only company in the next three or four years that will make money. Money just to find us free cash flow. We just see big black holes everywhere, right? And that's why you had Discovery Warners merge. That's why Comcast Viacom is rumored to get together. These businesses are really capital intensive. I don't think they have the same dynamics as the linear businesses that we all covering years ago. And Michael, this seems to be a broad sector call. And that's what gets my attention here. This is neutral Netflix, neutral Walt Disney Company, neutral Roku. You see this across the board here. Jonathan, the problem is, and I think it's to your previous guest about the cost of money, you've got to look out five, ten years to see valuation here be supportive. To me, that's just a long way to go, and everyone's so confident about their data points that I just think the other side of this trade, right? I mean, we know streaming is the future, but the market has overpriced these assets. I'm just going to wait for a better entry point at this point in time. Let's talk about the, what would it take for you to say I'm wrong. Always a good exercise, right. Michael. What would it take in the coming year? Is there anything? Well, I would say a couple of things. One is our view is that the U.S. is a very competitive market, and it's hard to eat profits out in the U.S. streaming business. I think you need to see more people move into the sidelines, right? You would see more consolidation. You would see Apple and Amazon you know, kind of step back. And you would start to see you need Netflix to start growing more quickly in the U.S., which would point to a higher upside, you know, penetration case, right? So I think here you need competition to lessen and you need, um, you know, growth to actually start reaccelerating again. So that's one. And then secondly, I think internationally, you would really need to see some of the developing markets where there's very low consumer pricing really start to show signs of pricing power. So those are, to me, the two things because, you know, the profits right now are in the U.S., potentially, and the growth is coming from low-market uh, places like India, low-pricing pri- markets. They just don't have great returns on invested capital. And, Michael, I've heard this a lot. The U.S. customer is more profitable than an international customer. How do we get them to be even? How long does that take? Well, it goes to, you know, a big part of the international story is developing markets, right? So you have Latin America and Asia-Pacific as the drivers of growth. But those price points are really low, right? The, the rest of the world price points outside Europe could be one-half to one-third the price of American customers. So it's just going to take a long time, Taylor, for pricing to start elevating, right? That's, and before the pricing can elevate, you need to give consumers a ton of content to make the product sticky, right? So you need to invest. And this is the biggest challenge. You need to invest tons of billions of dollars, billions of dollars to make the content except, you know, sticky enough to hold on to customers and then to drive pricing, right? So it takes years of investment to get to that place which you start raising pricing again. The other point that you made pretty well is about consolidation. I was reading another of your colleagues' um, notes talking about Amazon purchasing MGM for about $8.5 billion. Why isn't Netflix making more purchases? Should they be? What does consolidation in the industry look like to you? Yeah, there's not a lot they can do. I mean, the biggest the, the biggest reason why you make a, a bet on MGM is for franchises, right? The, the speed at which Disney built out their direct-to-consumer business 
is due to the um, speed tied to their ability to really lift Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars universe, you know, in streaming. So, but there's just not a lot of franchises like that still available. MGM has a few. Netflix is going to do this. Uh, MGM is really not a lot that that I see available to be bought. Um, I worry, you know, as the analyst covering the industry, that you're going to see Apple and Amazon put even more money to work in streaming because. You know, they have re- other reasons to do it besides trying to make a profit. Michael, just a bit of a tricky line this morning, so we're going to have to cut it short. But you know we always enjoy okay. catching up with you, sir, and we enjoy your work too. Send our regards to the team. That was Michael Nathanson, Moffat Nathanson Senior Research Analyst. This is a joy because he has done public service for America across so many areas, including ambassador to Japan and now senator from his, very much his, Tennessee. Bill Haggerty joins us, the Republican from Tennessee this morning. Senator Haggerty, I have to go to the stunning Washington Post analysis this morning of the unvaccinated. You are a leading spokesman on this. How are you going to convince the unvaccinated of your Tennessee to get it together and get vaccinated? Well, I think we're off to an incredibly uh, good start, thanks to Operation Warp Speed. I don't think there's enough credit given to the progress that we made here in an unprecedented level here in America. In Tennessee, I've been very clear. I've taken the vaccine. Uh, my mother, who is uh, 89 years old, has taken the vaccine. I lead by example. Uh, we continue to, to encourage people. To make, it's a personal choice for folks, of course. But uh, I've certainly been clear that I've looked at the data, and I think the right decision, certainly for me and my family, was to do just that. How do you sell it? We talked to French Hill of Little Rock the other day with the same challenges. I would suggest Arkansas, frankly, a grimmer story than any Tennessee. But what's the prescription you have with your knowledge of Nashville media and Tennessee business? What's the prescription? What's the plan to jumpstart this as we hear from President Biden? I think the, you know, as, as we look at where we're headed right now, uh, the numbers continue to look much better they in terms do, yes. of fatality. And, and we just need to continue to talk about that positive outcome, that positive result, and encourage people to right. continue to get behind it. As school reopens, things get back into the swing of things, we'll probably see yeah. another pickup in inoculation. One final question on this, Senator, because I know Taylor Riggs has some important questions as well. Senator Haggerty, what do you need from former President Trump to send a message to the unvaccinated? Uh, President Trump is having a hard time sending any messages thanks to the censorship of, uh, of big tech. His normal means of communication has been incredibly stifled. I think that's incredibly troubling. Um, in terms of his message to people, he was no one worked harder than President Trump to put a vaccine in place. I think people know that. I think he can convey that. Uh, but he put a tremendous amount of work in place with Operation Warp Speed to make this vaccine possible, not only for America, but for the rest of the world. I think uh, that's an incredible example. He should talk about that when he can. Senator, pivot with me, if you will, please, to infrastructure. What is the path to a bipartisan $579 billion infrastructure deal? Very hard to say. Uh, Chuck Schumer today is planning to put a procedural vote in place to start the process on this. Yet we haven't seen any text. Uh, We don't know the content of it. I haven't seen anything. Uh, You know, this sounds remarkably similar to something that we've all seen before. You remember you have to pass the bill before you can see what's in it? 
Obamacare 2.0, that didn't work out well for America. So uh, we have a lot, to, uh, a lot to see and a lot more work that needs to be done before I can comment on exactly you know, what's in the bill and how we should proceed on it. Is this two-path approach still the right way to go? Well, certainly not the path that I would take. You know, I'm a businessman my entire career. You know, I step back and look at this and say, what's happening here? You've got a two-path process, one that, you know, a lot of effort has gone into play. I think I, I respect my colleagues who have worked hard to put a bipartisan plan in place. But as you know, when you negotiate a deal, often what's even more important is what you negotiate out of a deal. Yet we've got the Biden administration, we've got Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer talking about pushing everything that was negotiated out of the deal right alongside. In fact, Nancy Pelosi has said that she's not going to even look at the bipartisan deal unless the not, you know, completely partisan uh, reconciliation package is put forward too. I wouldn't call it a reconciliation package. It's just another reckless tax and spending program that they're trying to shove through, a massive program, something that we've never seen before. And I think it's going to have devastating effects in the economy. So I'm very concerned about enabling this partisan package to go through under the guise of a partisan Thankfully, I do. You know, infrastructure package that's far smaller. Senator Haggerty, I am fascinated what your prescription is for your Republican Party. So many of the interviews we have with Republicans and with Democrats is a liberal tranche of the Democratic Party really troubling for moderate Democrats. Do the Republicans respond to that by being more staunchly conservative or by moving to a Lamar Alexander-like middle? I think what we need to do is continue to convey what's actually happening here. We need more business people like me in Washington. I think that's the, that's the point. We have a hard time conveying the, the essence of what's occurring here. But right now, what we're doing is we've already seen a $1.9 trillion package move through on a wholly partisan basis back in March of this year. That's roughly 10% of our GDP. They're talking now about dumping 20, 25% more of our GDP into this so-called infrastructure package. It's gonna be massively inflationary. We need yeah. to convey that. And when you hear, you, we hear you know, moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin say, he doesn't wanna put something through that isn't paid for. He doesn't wanna increase the debt. Mm -hmm. These are things that we need to push back on and say, well, if it's gonna pay for itself. You've gotta look at how they're talking about paying for it. And if they're talking about crushing taxes on job creators, if they're talking about killing capital formation by putting capital gains taxes in place. Those types of policies are going to be devastating to our economy. Right. The American public is smart enough to understand this. We need more business people talking about this in a way that's rational and easy to understand. Senator Haggerty, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you mentioned private business in Washington. I need you to comment this morning on the jailing of the private equity gentleman from Los Angeles, Tom Barrack. What were your thoughts when you heard of these actions by justice? Well, I've only seen a headline or two, so I don't know, you know anything about the, the specifics of the content of this case or what it has to do with private equity. Well, it doesn't have to do with private equity, but certainly it is of, of note here as well. Senator Haggerty, thank you so much for joining us today. Bill Haggerty, he is of Tennessee. Greatly appreciate that. Do you want to go to Thomas Kosterg on Tyler from I'll Love go Island. to Thomas Kosterg right now. Pick day to save me as well. Uh, uh, Jamila's in my ear. Boundaries, Tom. Boundaries. Thomas Kosterg, Pick Day Wealth, joining us right now. Good and within his, within his research, I'm going to ignore you. Within his research uh, note is a really, really important observation on America's savings pile. He's optimistic we're gonna spend a little bit of that savings pile over the next year to advance the American economy. But Thomas Constance, what happens 
in a couple years to that still massive savings pile. Right. So the savings pile right now is around $2.5 trillion. And so the question for the economy is how much will be spent uh, within the next year and within the next few years. Uh, actually, I think uh, you know a, a small amount of that will be spent, but a, but a small amount, which I think will be around 10 to 15 percent within the next year, but 10 to 15 percent of a big savings pile, it's still a big amount of, of, of consumer spending, uh, which will be uh, you know flowing into the economy in the next few months. And that's why I'm quite uh, cautiously optimistic about uh, the U.S. consumer and therefore U.S. GDP in the coming uh, month, even though we are going to see a deceleration in growth, that's for sure. But I think the U.S. consumer will stay quite uh, quite resilient. Do you believe that our savings pile, as you call it, has a permanent feature to it, that it's a permanent fixture of how we believe and think? Well, I do think that, yes, indeed, I think some of that, you know, Part of the savings went into the equity market, went into long-term savings, and will probably uh, not go back uh, into the economy. Uh, but I think you know part of it will be spent. Point number one, and also I do believe in uh, credit card lending. I think credit card lending has also uh, some upside potential uh, in the coming weeks and months, and that will also support uh, consumer spending. If we get you know say 50 to 100 billion more in credit card lending, that will be very helpful for growth. Because you're right, we we have. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of tailwinds are going to fade in the second half of the year, including the reopening, um, the fiscal support, uh, so things like that. We also have some headwinds from the Delta variant. But I think the U.S. consumer will be able to be uh, resilient. Thomas, to what degree do you think Q4 is going to shape the outlook for the whole cycle, not just the following year, the year after, but the whole cycle? Right, right. So the thing with the U.S. cycle is that we're going back to potential growth, right? So we're going back to the trajectory before the pandemic. And that, that matters because that's usually a signal that we're mid-cycle. And we know that when we're mid-cycle, growth is getting harder to get. And the situation becomes more fragile, more uh, difficult, more, you know, without more risks. So uh, it, it is true that 2022 could see more risks. However, again, I think, you know, the U.S. consumer can propel growth. I also think we could have more lending in the economy, very accommodative financial conditions, despite uh, the Fed, uh, the Fed's tapering. And so that could help sustain growth going forward, even though from a pure metric perspective, we're already mid-cycle and we have more risks. So, Thomas, potential. What is potential in the U.S. economy? What is it now? Two sub two? Yeah, I, I don't think potential growth has changed that much. I think it's still around two uh, percent. Uh, the problem is, again, uh, that we have you know weak demographics. Um, you know, birth rate is, is, is especially a concern. I think we, we don't have enough babies uh, in the U.S., but also, I think, in Europe as well. Uh, and that's definitely an impediment to growth. And with regards to innovation, innovation is there and it's actually even more prevalent in the U.S. than in Europe. But still, I think innovation is still failing to really broaden out and to spread through the economy. I think that's that's the problem. So uh, productivity growth may pick up, but it won't be a massive pickup going forward. Are you confident that peak inflation is also behind us? Right, so re regarding inflation, it's a bit complicated. Um, right now we have the bottleneck inflation. So we have you know scarcity of some products, but next year we'll have the cyclical uh, inflation because usually inflation comes with a lag. So you have the recovering growth and then one year later you have the, the, the bounce in inflation. And so 2022 may still see uh, inflation above 2% for, uh, for cyclical reasons. The, the real question is about 2023 
Uh, and then I think that the jury is out. I think some deflationary forces uh, still apply. But I, I keep an open mind because, you know, uh, two forces that I'm watching are uh, globalization and especially the U.S.-China tension, which could lead to potentially an erosion in globalization and more inflation in the U.S. Uh, and also um, the, uh, the, the, the share of uh, labor in the economy and whether uh, wages are, uh, go up more. But I think that's, that's a topic for another day. I know I'm simplifying this, so, so bear with me. You've had a few senators come out and saying that this inflation is effectively a tax. So you've taken away all of those wage gains that you described because of that inflation. How do you think about that? Right. I, I don't think wages are a threat to inflation until we get to, say, around five-ish or, or more on, 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 on wage growth. And, you know, we're not there. We're at 3.2 on the Atlanta Fed median wage uh, growth number. So we're, we're still well below uh, levels that could be dangerous for inflation in the sense that they will lead to a self-perpetuation of inflation above 2%. So, you know, we're not in the danger zone for uh, in terms of wage growth. And actually, I think wage growth still has room to go up without threatening uh, inflation. How is that? How do you get wage? Or real, do, you, do you get back to a constructive and positive real wage and it does not affect inflation? Right. I think the, the correlation between wages and inflation is actually much more fragile and much more uh, you know, tenuous uh, and, and slim uh, than widely uh, uh, appreciated. I think the real danger comes above 5% on wage growth, and especially on the Atlanta Fed median wage. You have to look at median wages. Really, it's how, you know, someone staying in the labor force and staying in the same job, how his or her wage uh, compares uh, mm -hmm. through time. I think that, that's, that, that's the key indicator. And so to, to me, the key indicator is the Atlanta Fed median wage growth number. And again, it's, we're at 3.2% right now, year on year, and it's still very uh, quite soft. So I would not worry yeah. until we reach, say, 5%. 5, 5%. We're not there yet. And John, the run rate on the Atlantic Fed, I totally agree with Thomas on this, on the median aspect of wage growth. We're not, we got to get back to 3.6%. John Farrow to really get there. We're not there yet. Tom, I'm smiling because only economists call 5% wage growth dangerous. Will you find anyone else that calls 5% wage I growth dangerous? agree. Thomas, why totally is it? Agree. Just let's finish there. For a lot of people who might have accidentally tuned in this morning, trying to find something else, maybe some sports, I don't know, and stumbled across some economists talking about the labor market. What's dangerous about a 5% wage hike? Right, because then it starts to affect inflation expectations, uh, and um, you have also, uh, you know, wage gains starting to outpace uh, productivity. So this is based. I mean, this uh, reasoning that I have is also based on historical relationships. Uh, you know, we have to go back, you know, in time to see wage growth of, of above, you know, five percent. I think in the early 1990s. Yeah. Uh, and then you had uh, inflation sustainably above two percent. And it was a time when actually central banks were struggling to bring down inflation. I think right now the problem is that they're trying to move it up. Uh, and so I think those days of the early 1990s are probably gone uh, and they're unlikely to go back. But I, may, I might be wrong, but so far I don't see them. Thomas in terms Costa of wage growth. Of PICTEF Wealth Management, senior US economist. Thomas, good to catch up, sir. Thank, Thank you. you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this 
is Bloomberg.